Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellero, and this week my guest is archaeologist Dr. Sarah Parkak. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really interested in your work because it's an awesome hybrid between one of my specialties, that's space and science and physics and archaeology. So this is going to be a really, really cool show. Thank you for joining me. So I'm, you, I, I'm excited to chat. Um, for the listeners, I'm going to give you a brief introduction. You are an archaeologist, anthropologist, Egyptologist, and remote sending, sensing expert who has used satellite imaging to identify potential archaeological sites in Egypt, Rome, and elsewhere. You've won the $1 million TED Prize, and you've written the first textbook on the field of satellite archaeology called Satellite Remote Sensing for Archaeology. And you have a recent book, too, a popular book. We'll, we'll talk about that. You hold a PhD from Cambridge University in Egyptian archaeology, and currently you are at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So, tell me the difference between archaeology and anthropology as sort of a warm-up. Sure. Um, It depends on what side of the pond you're on. So, in the U.S., um, we have what's called a four-field approach to anthropology. Um, So, I'm in an anthropology department, so that means that Um, There are archaeologists, there are people who study modern cultures or cultural anthropologists, there are people who study um, human remains and animal remains, so those are our physical anthropologists or bioarchaeologists, and then we have people who study human language and communication, and those are our linguists. Um, But archaeologists deal with ancient peoples, more modern anthropologists or cultural anthropologists tend to deal with modern cultures. Over in England, archaeology is a totally separate department. Okay. So Egyptian archaeology is a fairly specialized subject. I'm curious. Seems like you were on track with that very early. Even your bachelor's from Yale was in Eastern languages and civilization, Egyptology and archaeological studies. How did you know so early that that's what you wanted to do for your life's work? If you talk to any Egyptologist, they'll give you a pretty similar answer, and that's that from a really, really young age, four, five, six years old, um, we all just fell in love with Egypt. Now, I grew up in Maine in the 1980s, really the early 1980s, and this is a time, you know, pre-internet, before cable. Um, We were lucky to live close to the Bangor Public Library, but there was really no rhyme or reason for me to love Egypt. I joke that, like, instead of camels, we had moose, and instead of sand, (laughs) snow, like, what's the reason? I think maybe it was a bit of um, National Geographic. Of course, I, I grew up being a child of the 80s, you know, the, the, the Indiana Jones movies. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think I think there was a ton of media in the early 80s because the Tut exhibit was coming back through the U.S. for a second time. So it had to be some combination of those things. How about uh, Stargate, Dr. Daniel Jackson? That came a bit later. That did. I think I was in high school when that came out. Sort of the, was it like the early 90s? The late 90s, actually. Or late 90s. Okay, see, I've, I've completely lost track of time. So yeah, that was even when I was in college. Yeah, being being in Maine, as you said, was kind of off the beaten path for archaeology. Was there a, a teacher uh, in high school who kind of turned you onto it, or did you just kind of just go with the flow from the movies, or what? Yeah, I um, I, uh, I I read everything I could in grade school, and middle school, and high school. I actually got into politics when I was in high school. I thought I was going to. Um, to, to go to law school and then come back to, and, and go to Maine and run for office. Thank goodness I didn't go down that path, given current politics. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, there was no there was no one teacher that that made me love Egypt. It was just a love I, I always had. I will say that the Tooth Fairy brought me an amazing uh, book about the history of Egypt when I was five or six years old when I lost my first tooth. But um, the Tooth Fairy, aka my mom, told me that uh, that I'd already been talking about Egypt for a long time. So there, there, there's no one moment I can remember that where I fell in love with it. So were you uh, obsessed with the library then and reading all about Egypt and just sort of Sort of like kids and dinosaurs. It was you in Egypt. Is that how it went? Exactly. exactly. I, I read. I read every every book on Egypt in the library. Uh, I had, uh, you know, I, I would wait for National Geographic every month, hoping that there would be a story about Egypt. Every now and then, there was a great documentary on PBS. Um, but uh, but yeah, unfortunately, you know, those days there I couldn't watch YouTube videos. Um, there just wasn't a huge amount of material available. So I tell kids today they're really really lucky. Does an Egyptologist or an archaeologist, for that matter, have to know a lot of mathematics and physics or chemistry? So, you know, I when I when I went to college, um, I did not appreciate the amount of science that was necessary for archaeology. And I ended up taking um, a number of did both in archaeology and geology. Um, I took courses um, like remote sensing, um, which requires a lot of knowledge of physics. I really wish my physics background had been had been stronger. Optics, I guess, too. Yeah, optics, optics, of course. Yeah, I wish my physics background had been stronger going into college. Um, of course, you know, having a really solid grounding in biology is essential because um, of, of all of the work we do with human remains, animal bones, and DNA studies. So I tell students now um, that in addition to studying archaeology, they should double major in a science. That's the way the field is going. Do you do a lot of carbon dating? Personally, um, I'm not a specialist in, in carbon dating, but we certainly collect a lot of samples um, to be dated on the various archaeological sites where I work. It's really important. Okay, cool. I read that uh, your husband is an Egyptologist as well, Dr. Greg Munford. Yes, we, we tend to come in pairs in my world. Did you meet him early, or was that a professional kind of discovery? <laughs> How did that work? I, I, you know, I, I, I get asked often, what's your greatest archaeological discovery in the past? <laughs> My husband, <laughs> I, I did not go into the field looking for an MRS uh, at the time. Um, you know, I, I, a date would have been nice when I was 19, 20 years old. You know, it was on my first excavation in Egypt, actually exactly uh, 20 years ago this summer. And Greg's a little older than I am. He was doing his postdoc. Um, I was an undergrad and I met him. We were friends for a while before we started dating. Um, but I can legitimately say I met my husband down a dirty hole. Like he, he was <laughs> digging away very happily. And then that was that was it. I imagine being married to another Egyptologist is a sort of a catalyst because you have common ground and things to talk about and things to learn from each other. Yeah, it's it's nice. I mean, we have a partnership in in all things. You know, we 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 co-parent a um, a seven year old. Um, we we love hiking. We love being outdoors. Um, it's funny. It, it it always surprises people when I tell them just how little we talk about Egypt. I mean, we have very busy lives and family and whatnot. Um, but it's nice, though. It's nice that you have this 
common ground. And of course, we, um, we, we've been working together very closely for 20 years. We collaborate. I tend to be the more technical, big picture person. He tends to be the more nuts and bolts, um, dirt focused person. So it's a nice, it's a nice partnership. And he very, very much pushes me to be uh, a far better scholar. He tells me that, that article words in an article are that which binds footnotes together. Um, <laughs> that tells you anything. So, uh, so I, I, uh, I'm very grateful. We've been married now for um, nearly uh, 14 years. Do you get to work together on digs a lot by scheme and by planning, or do you end up separated from each other a lot? No, I, I, um, I make sure that we work very closely together. Um, so in Egypt, when I started work uh, with him, he was the project director, um, but we've transitioned now. So I tend to, I'm the project director or dig director, and he is the field director. So that means he gets to focus on digging. Um, as he tells me, he's, he's done his time. You know, being a dig director, it sounds really glamorous, but you're basically like a hotel manager, a diplomat, um, <laughs> dealing with personnel and budgets and governments. And it's messy. I mean, I love it. It's, it's an enormous privilege, um, but he definitely has more fun than I do on digs, but he's, he's earned it. Speaking of politics, I'm going to ask you about that in the second half of the show. But first, I want to continue on with just a little bit more about your early career. Um, prior to joining the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where you are now, uh, you were uh, a teacher of Egyptian art and history at the University of Wales, Swansea. Did I say that right? Yes, yes. I, I'm, I, I'm betting that that was a result of your Ph.D. in Cambridge near London, and you had connections, I'm betting. <laughs> Yeah, so so Greg had um, he'd applied for and gotten uh, the equivalent of a tenure track job there just after we'd gotten married, um, and I just finished my PhD. And one of their professors uh, went on research leave for the year, so I very much lucked out. I was there. I just finished my dissertation. Um, you know, typically, for as your listeners probably know, in academia, it's really hard to go right from your PhD to a teaching position. Right. You usually have to do a postdoc in the United States. That's right. So, so I just finished. And so I used that year. I taught a couple of classes, wrote a lot of articles and used that year to really apply for jobs on the job market. Were you thinking about staying in the UK because of the proximity to the Middle East at that time? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely contemplated it. You know, it's, it's a, it was a nice department. We had nice colleagues. Um, and to be blunt, like, I, I didn't think I would be able to land a position in the U.S. It's, it's so difficult. You know, you typically have to yeah. spend three, four, five years applying for jobs, doing postdocs, temporary teaching gigs. And so when I got the interview at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, I thought, well, okay, it's nice to get an interview. There's no way I'm going to get this job. Came here. Um, met with a wonderful and, and very sympathetic dean um, who told me, you know, shortly after I was offered the job, look, like, we want to keep you here. We know your husband um, is also a, a world-class archaeologist. And within a year, Greg also had a tenure track position at UAB. Cool. Uh, how did you feel about uh, moving from the London culture and Wales culture to Alabama. Was that a culture shock for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, being from the Northeast, you have all these preconceived notions about, you know, what the South is like. Um, and this, so this would have been 13 years ago. And at the time, Birmingham, 
um, wasn't the city it is today. Um, I definitely had strong opinions about what the South would be like. Uh, even today, to me, it, it feels like a foreign country. I know. Uh, but, but, you know, Birmingham is incredibly liberal. We have four universities here. Um, the Jefferson County, where, where Birmingham sits, has gone blue in the last um, three presidential elections. So it's a lot like Austin, a very large LGBT population, um, very diverse, incredible art scene. So it's become oh, one cool. of these Sort of like the Austin, Texas yeah. of Alabama, yeah, right? And, and, and the whole city is just exploded. Um, I mean, there's so many new restaurants and cool you know, bars and coffee shops. So it's become a really nice place to live, which is not something it was 13 years ago. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also like it, we're, we're Delta people. So, you know, you just hop on to Atlanta and we can go anywhere in the world. Um, so it's taken some time and adjusting, but you know, it's definitely, it's definitely grown on us. Yeah. I had a chance to uh, move to Tennessee when I was living in Colorado, working for Lockheed Martin and the culture clash between Colorado and Tennessee was amazing. I can can only imagine. (laughs) The Oak Ridge National Laboratory was a wonderful place to work, but uh, we're back in Colorado now. We we belong. So I understand. Well, um, Sarah, we have to take a short break right now. Okay. Um, Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with archaeologist Dr. Sarah Parkak. We will be right back. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with archaeologist Dr. Sarah Parkak. All right, now. Now we're going to get into the fun part of the show. All right. So from 2003 to 2004, you used a combination of satellite imaging analysis and surface surveys to search for potential sites of archaeological interest. I don't believe anybody had ever done that before. What inspired you to do that? Um, so I so I took a course when I was an undergraduate at, at Yale in introductory remote sensing. And the reason I took the class is because of my grandfather, uh, Harold Young. He was a professor of forestry at the University of Maine in Orono. Uh, and he pioneered or was one of the pioneers in the use of aerial photography or aerial photogrammetry in forestry. So he used aerial photographs and looking at their, th- them overlapping and in 3D. What is photogrammetry? So this, this using aerial photographs or it's the science of studying aerial photographs um, to look at whether you're looking at urban changes or tree heights um, so it's, it's a lot like remote sensing, but specifically using aerial photographs. And as a forester, and, and of course working in Maine, he was very interested in mapping biodiversity and looking at uh, tree health. Um, and so, so he, he's the reason that, that I took my first remote sensing class. I thought at, th- at that point, unfortunately, he he um, 
he was no longer with, with us. We lost him to, to cancer after my first year at university. But I thought, well, Grampy used this quote unquote state of the art technology in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, I bet loads of people have used this for archaeology. And I bet all of Egypt is already mapped. But wouldn't it be neat to take this class to learn? I bet it what? wasn't. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> Surprise. There's yeah. like nothing. There's nothing to cite. Um, I, I just say there are a few articles, but 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 hardly anything had been done. And certainly, there were no methodologies developed for um, looking for archaeological sites across large landscapes. Um, so I was really one of the first people to to use satellite imagery at a large scale um, for Egyptology. So, what satellite sources did you use? Did you use commercial satellites where you can buy images, or did you work with NASA and apply for a grant, or how did that get started? Yeah, so so initially, as a poor graduate student, I relied on free NASA data. <laughs> I will be grateful to, to NASA forever. Um, at the time, well, now they've they've released all their their satellite images for free online. At the time, so this would have been. Um, uh, goodness, eight, 17, 18 years ago, um, there was a lot of free imagery online, but I, in, you had to pay $50, dollars $200. Um, so I managed to scrape together some some scholarships um, and, and some funding to get those images. Yeah, at the time, commercial imagery was definitely not affordable. Um, and high-resolution satellite sensors had just been launched. So to get a single high-resolution satellite image of a standard site was many, many thousands of dollars. Uh, now it's much more affordable. You can get the same image today for a couple hundred dollars. I have some experience myself with satellites. What kind of ground resolution did you need to have to do your work? So at that time, um, because I was doing large-scale landscape analysis, so I wasn't looking for specific features on archaeological sites, I was much more interested in finding huge archaeological sites. So these sites would have been, you know, a couple hundred meters by a couple hundred meters uh. or bigger. So with the satellite sensors I was using, which were um, Aster and Landsat, these had resolutions between 15 meters and 30 meters per pixel. In other words, you know, when you zoom in from space, that's the, that's the resolution you get. So that, that was fine for me at the time. Now um, I need very high resolution because I'm trying to detect varied features on site. So the resolution I have is between point, point 0.3 and point 0.4 meters per pixel. Awesome. Awesome. What about the wavelengths? I think I read that you used infrared. Is that because it penetrates the ground better? I'm curious. So, um, so depending on where you're working in the world, the techniques that you apply are very different. Um, obviously, you can't see through trees with, um, with satellite imagery. In that case, you use a laser mapping system to create point clouds so that you can get a, a ground elevation model. Um, that's called LIDAR. But what we deal with is optical remote sensing. And we're looking for very subtle differences in the surface vegetation or soils or geology that help us to determine if there are potential buried archaeological features, relic, um, river courses, or indeed entire archaeological sites. So we're looking for di diverse um, chemical signatures of the ground soil that indicates ancient remains. And for the most part, certainly in, in Egypt and across the Middle East and North Africa, um, the near-infrared is really important and the mid-infrared is really important in that the mid-infrared allows you to measure the spectra of diverse geological types 
uh, as well as soil and the near infrared allows you to see subtle differences in groundwater moisture and all those things combined together um, when you're analyzing the imagery using using algorithms allows uh, archaeological sites and features to really pop out. Ah, you mentioned algorithms. I was wondering whether you pour over images with a magnifying glass or whether you scan the images in and use a optical algorithm to you know look at the image. Does a does the computer do spot that stuff for you, or is it the eyeball? Right. So, so I, I and my colleagues use standard off-the-shelf remote sensing software. There are a couple of different packages: Envy, um, Erdos Imagine, uh, ER Mapper, um, ArcGIS products. Um, they're they're all similar-ish. We use different programs for different uh, approaches. But you know, whether you're a, a biologist mapping. Um, biodiversity in the Amazon, or you're uh, a meteorologist and you're looking at uh, weather patterns, whether you're um, an environmental scientist and you're looking at polar ice cap melting, we all use the same images and the same processing techniques. Um, so we order imagery depending on what images are going to be best for we're working. We always use more than one image type. We import it into the computer Different program. times of day, I imagine, yeah, for shadows. Different times of day, different times of year, different weather becomes really important as well. Um, and so we then import all the data into the computer program and then start processing it. So there's a lot of pre-processing we have to do. Then we just run a series of algorithms um, on the image to try to make the features appear. If you take the same photo of the same site at different times of day, you get different uh, shadow patterns. And can you pop out a stereo image doing that? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so oftentimes we'll order um, stereo images of sites um, just b- because, that, as you say, that's really helpful in terms of the mapping and topography. Um, it's also really interesting. You know, I've gotten imagery of the same site in Egypt in January and Ju- June and October. And the image or the feature or archaeological feature may show up really, really clearly in the January image. It may not appear at all in the June image. It may be really faint in the October image. So time of year and weather are are also really critical for the work I do. So what's your success rate? You think you spot something from the space image and then you go visit the site. Have you ever, ever had a situation where you thought you saw something from space that was really interesting and you get there and it's just a bust? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so so I have a very funny story to share. So um, I was working on a on a program, collaborating with colleagues, um, looking for potential um, Viking features in Scotland. And there are about ten sites or so where we analyzed the imagery, um, and we thought sort of the top five were very very clear. Um, and there's one site where it looked like it was a super, super clear longhouse, the same size and shape and orientation of other longhouses in the area. And we gave that to colleagues to go check it out on the ground. And it turns out that the farmers had just cut the ground turf and it was completely <laughs> random. It was like we, we, we joke to this day that the farmers were trying to fool us. They somehow knew, but obviously it was just a, a coincidence. So n- now with the work that we're doing, we've gotten pretty good. I would say we know. 95 to 98% chance of success with what we're doing. And, you know, I, I don't ever work in a vacuum. I collaborate with, with a team. I work with people at my organization, Global Explorer. I work with colleagues and archaeologists. So there's very much a narrowing down. So let's just say we find 20 things and we think they're awesome. 
it may be that we only decide to focus on four of them on the ground because it's obvious that they're things. So we also control our, our success rate on the ground by making sure that what we're checking out is, is has a high degree of likelihood of being something. So you serve as the founding director of the Laboratory for Global Observation at the University of Alabama. Does that entail you doing analysis and sending other people out, like graduate students, <laughs> treks? No, um, no. So yeah, it's just a, it's a it's a lab that does remote sensing work. Um, you know, I teach I teach an introductory remote sensing course, an advanced remote sensing course. Um, the anthropology department at UAB doesn't have a PhD program. Um, we have uh, an MA program, but I've certainly mentored I think four or five PhD students from other departments, so um, students from the School of Public Health, School of Engineering. Um, I've mentored uh, graduate students in the biology department as well as PhD students. So if a student has an interest in remote sensing, um, you know I'm, I'm happy to mentor them. Cool, cool. Well, I want to get into a little bit of politics now instead of science, as I promised. Uh, how does satellite imagery, and I'm drawing this from your discussion with Dr. Kiki Sanford uh, in a previous podcast on This Week in Science, how does satellite imagery provide evidence of looting in Egypt? Let's, let's explore that for a bit. Sure. So so I should say looting in Egypt has been going on for, for thousands of years. Um, the pyramids were probably looted shortly after, um, or actually during the burial of the kings. Um, the same for a lot of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. And even King Tut's tomb, which we assume um, was intact, wasn't. The burial party actually stole stuff. And you can see handprints in some of the jars where they scooped out ancient um, creams. So, yeah, but with, with looting of sites, um, it's very easy to detect from satellite imagery because you typically have a hole in the ground where the looters are going down into a tomb. Um, and there's like a donut shape of earth around that looting hole or looting pit. It's what mm. we call them looting pits. Um, and the path is identical everywhere, whether it's Egypt or Iraq or Peru or the American Southwest or China. Um, looting looks the same everywhere in the world. And what you can do is using these very high resolution satellite sensors that have a resolution of, you know, 0.5 meters or a foot and a half. Um, it's really easy to detect these looting pits. And so after the Arab Spring, uh, we um, we analyzed a lot of imagery from across Egypt and were able to track looting at a number of sites. And we then gave that data to the Egyptian government. Uh, that was my next question. Does that make the Egyptian government more friendly to you in terms of the politics and coordinating digs and visits and so on? Yeah, I uh, I try to keep out of the politics of, of Egypt, uh, like, like every country. Um, Is it easy to get into Egypt and do the things you want to do physically? I, I, I mean, so I don't, I, ne- I don't want to say it's easy. I, I, I work there, obviously, with the very kind permission of Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities, and I've been working there now for 20 years, and I'm very lucky to have a number of um, close friends and colleagues. Um, the permitting process is very strict, as it should be. Um, the Egyptian government only wants people, you know, with, with PhDs that are serious scientists um, to be able to get their permits to work in Egypt. So it's a pretty rigorous application process. You typically put your paperwork in six months in advance. Uh, you have to include the CVs and bios of all your team members, a detailed description of the work you're doing, filling out a number of forms. It's, it's roughly equivalent in work to applying for an NSF R01 grant. Um, and then a, a committee of scientists 
for the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities will review your application. Um, and my the work I do at a site called Blisht, which is about an hour and a half south of Cairo, it's called a joint mission. And this means that I have an Egyptian co-director and equal numbers of Egyptian and foreign ah. scientists. And it works so much better that way. Obviously, there's tremendous local expertise and knowledge. Um, it's it's far better to have a collaborative project. People are there on the ground year round. Um, so that's really my, my approach um, to to doing work there. And I've been very lucky the last four years. The Egyptian government's just been so incredibly supportive of, of the work that I've been able to do. I imagine the Egyptian co-director goes back and says good things about you. And that helps. I, I, I hope so. But, you know, I I, I really make sure, um, and this is what I encourage you know stu- younger students to, to to do in the field of Egyptology. Um, your permit doesn't matter. What matters are the relationships that you build with your colleagues mm-hmm. in Egypt. You know the yes, the reason I'm I'm working with so many great people is because I've known them for ten or fifteen years, and I've really focused on cultivating those relationships. And I'm constantly on the phone with my friends in Egypt. Um, this is why I love social media, whether it's Facebook or, or Twitter, I can keep in contact with people and really kind of keep my eye to the ears, eyes and ears on the ground and, and, and really make sure I understand the landscape of what's happening. Next question. Is global climate change affecting the quality or survivability of certain digs? Oh, 100%. Um, we're hearing a lot of stories now from colleagues that are working um, on sites in Greenland and in uh, the Arctic and in Alaska. Um, the permafrost is melting. And on the one hand, the permafrost is melting, so archaeological sites are being exposed. On the other hand, the permafrost is melting and objects like leather or clothing or wood that have been encased in ice for a thousand or more years are now exposed and they're going to get destroyed. Um, so between melting permafrost and rising um, sea levels, we, we have a big battle on our hands coming up. And I don't think my field is ready at all for what's coming. So monitoring the planet like NASA does and a lot of other agencies is very important to gather scientific data and have a historical record of the changes. But um, I think I heard you say uh, previously that the funds for archaeological things are drying up. Is that true? They, they are. You know, now it's it's virtually impossible to get an NSF grant. Um, I don't think National Geographic is funding archaeology very much anymore. Uh, you know, I know the NEH uh, funds funds archaeology, but again, it's very competitive. So a lot of um, digs are, are turning to crowdfunding, uh, private donors. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that's that's really important. Um, but, yeah, there's just simply not the money for it. And I think to a large extent it's because people don't understand the value of archaeology. They think, oh, it's like a hobby and you're just digging in the ground for some potsherds. But that's not the case at all. We're, we're contending with some pretty serious issues now, I mean, whether it's climate change or the rise of, of nationalism, you know, immigrants, migration, um, huge conversations we're having. And guess what? We've been contending with these issues for thousands of years. Archaeology has a lot to teach us um, about the, the, the ways that we might deal with these issues today. And, and I don't think enough people understand that. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. I only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to pick and choose my questions carefully here. Um, what have been some of your most remarkable discoveries? Tell us about it. 
Um, one of my favorites um, was being able to map the city of Tanis, the iconic site that, that everyone seems to know from Indiana Jones. So this was Egypt's capital from about 3,000 years ago, around 1,000 BC. And what's amazing about the site is while French archaeologists have been working there for over 100 years, um, they've never done any extensive mapping or ex- excavation work on the settlement. And that's shocking. This is the capital city of Egypt, uh, Egypt's capital for 400 years. And we were able to map almost the entirety of the central city from satellite imagery. Um, and, and that's been a really, really exciting um, thing to be able to share with my colleagues. So you were able to see structures and, and ground physical effects of the city that weren't visible on the ground when it's standing in front of you, but you could see the pattern from space. Is that how it worked? Correct. So when you walk around the site, you're just walking around a large series of dusty brown hills. You can't yeah. see and then from space, you can see the outline of an entire city. And it's not just like a, you know, a cat skin where you need a doctor to, to interpret a blob. It's like it's all, there are dozens of, of very clear houses, wow. streets, palaces, administrative buildings. Actually, I have, a, I have a copy of the satellite image in my book. And I tell people, don't don't believe me, look at the picture. And every time I show the picture in a public presentation, I always get gasps because it's it, it looks like a medieval city. It looks like any European city today. Amazing. If you've got one of those photos, uh, I'd love to put it in the, in the uh, show notes. I'd be Very happy to cool. see it to you. So you just published a book this July. It's brand new called Archaeology from Space, uh, How the Future Changes Our Past. Can you give us a thumbnail of the book, how to get it? <laughs> So, yeah, so it, it's easy to, to find. You can order it on uh, Amazon, IndieBound. Of course, you're, you're, I highly recommend going to your local uh, local indie bookstore uh, or going to your local public library and requesting it. Um, but it's very easy to get. Cool. And how can the listeners contact you personally if they want? Twitter? Uh, so, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, my ha- handle is Indie from Space, I-N-D-Y from space. And I, I very active on Twitter. I love getting questions and I regularly respond to, to folks. There was one more question I wanted to ask you. Are you still alone in this field or have you inspired other people to take up this research from space and you have multiple colleagues in different countries doing the same thing you're doing now? Oh, there, there are dozens of us, um, many, many dozens, perhaps even hundreds now that are, are doing this work. And in fact, in, in my book, Archaeology from Space, I really wanted to use that as a platform to share the extraordinary work that my colleagues are doing around the world. Um, but it's great. It's great. We're very collaborative. You know, there's, there's no competition. There are tens of millions of archaeological sites left to find. So we all, we all are working hard to, to work together. Um, but yeah, there are many of us working all over the world as, as for the, I guess the fun term for what I do is as, as space archaeologists. Cool. Cool. Well, with that, we're going to have to close the show. I want to thank you so much for joining me and telling me all about the exciting work you're doing. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to John Marcellaro and Dr. Sarah Parkak, archaeologist. This is Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>